Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Morning, church family. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you would be so kind. We talked about uh, joy, the joy of the Lord. We're going to flesh that out further in our sermon time. Alex just shared about where our treasure is, there our heart is also. We're going to talk more about that. We talked about high school graduates launching them off into the world. We're going to talk more about that. So we've already got a head start on the sermon time today. Isn't that good? We should be able to make some fast tracks and get real deep into it here. Uh, We're in the final principle of our discipleship series, six principles on discipleship. Next Sunday's Father's Day, the following Sunday is Baptism Sunday, and then we have a breather Sunday before we get into our summer teaching series. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little advertisement for our summer teaching series. We're going to be talking about some of our favorite characters in the Bible and how the story of their lives points to the gospel and points to Jesus. So that's what we're going to be talking about through the course of the summer Some of the more exciting stories through the book of the Bible. I've heard that some people who are going to be speaking in this series are going to try and find obscure characters that maybe you haven't heard a whole lot about and talk about why they're some of their favorite characters in the Bible. So that's this summer. So here's what we've said through this discipleship series. A little recap as we get to the end here. Discipleship happens personally. I need to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It's not just some cosmic, impersonal force. It's personal. It's relational. God meets us where we're at. Discipleship happens in community. The early church had this incredible unity that displayed God's glory to all the people around them. They did discipleship together. Then week three, Steve talked about how discipleship happens incrementally. Sharing the journey of faith, that happens to be our motto here at Faith Baptist Church, sharing the journey. It's not just a three-step linear solution. It's the highs and lows of life, doing life together. It calls us to prayerful patience, an active waiting, Steve talked about. Week four, discipleship happens faithfully through the tough times. The tough times actually serve as good opportunities for discipleship, for growth, for development. We shouldn't be chasing after ease and comfort. And then last week, week five, discipleship happens supernaturally. For man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Discipleship will take more than you have to offer. It's about the spirit of truth at work in the inner man. Discipleship literally happens from the inside out. That was last week. Today, we're saying that discipleship happens purposefully. Discipleship is God's ultimate purpose for your life. If you want to get hung up in a conversation about what's God's will for my life, what should I, what should I do after high school, where should I go to school, what should I major in, that dreaded question that graduates get asked, what are you going to do with your life? Well, what does God want you to do with your life? Let me tell you, he wants you to disciple. That's God's ultimate purpose for your life. Are you at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? All right, flip back to chapter 1 just for a moment. I just want to read you a couple verses from chapter 1 before we get into chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's that word joy that we opened the service singing about. So that, verse 7, you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. Here's what Paul's saying. You talk the talk and you're walking the walk. You believe the truth and now you're living it out practically in your life. Paul sends this letter expressing his gratitude to the Thessalonican Christians 
for their journey of discipleship and how they're growing in their faith, how they're following Jesus. Not because it was easy, it was actually quite difficult, but he helped them follow Jesus as he himself was following Jesus. Now they are showing others how to follow Jesus, not just the truth of God's word, but also how it practically plays out in their life. They're setting the example and they're speaking the truth. They're believing what God has said and the truth of the gospel, and then they're living it out practically in their lives. And this is why Paul's thankful. This is why Paul is sending them this letter, expressing his gratitude. Isn't this the big goal? Isn't this like full cycle discipleship? Don't we want to help people follow Jesus so that they can help other people follow Jesus so that they can help other people follow Jesus? Isn't this the marker whereby they get it? They understand what discipleship is? The point at which they can turn around and say, why don't you follow me as I'm following Jesus? And then that person turns around and says to the next person, why don't you follow me as I'm following Jesus and let's do this journey together? Isn't this full cycle discipleship? Isn't this what it's all about? Paul mentions the joy of the spirit in all this. Can I ask a question as we begin? What brings you joy in life? Like what is it that if you got the text message or the email or the phone call and you heard the news, it would bring joy, great joy. What is it that you would long to do, to spend your time with, to get on your calendar, to the place you want to be, the people you want to be with? What is it that causes joy in your life? What is joy to you? What is good news of great joy to you? That's right in the Christmas story, isn't it? And then in Advent season, as we're leading up to Christmas, we light the joy candle and we talk about joy and we talk about how joy is not circumstantial. It's this deep-seated happiness that's sustained even through the tough times. It's joy that's so much deeper than just a shallow appreciation of the current circumstances. Joy is lasting. It's sustained. What causes joy in your life? Where do you find joy? Paul talks about the joy of the Holy Spirit in the discipleship process. Spoiler alert, this is the big idea that we're going to land on today at the end of the sermon time. So if, if you're in and out, if it's too warm in the auditorium, if you did too much gardening this weekend, here's the big idea. Don't miss it. The joy of the Lord in the midst of discipleship. All right, chapter two. Are you there? Verse one. We're going to have it up on the screen for you. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I love that. Even through conflict, even through the hard times, they had opportunity to share the gospel. Do you know that God works through hard times? We had a, a men and boys camp out this past weekend, and a few brave souls made the trek up the mountain. Is it Belmont Mountain that we were up? Uh, I took our... Nissan Altima, which was a mistake. <laughs> Next year in the promo, I think we should clarify four-wheel drive preferred. Uh, but the Altima made it, slow and steady. Um, I think Austin, did, did anybody else catch a fish? You caught a fish on Friday. I caught two. You caught two fish. Yeah. Did anybody else caught? Doug caught one. Doug caught one, okay. So not, not a lot of great fishing stories. But we sat around this, um, I don't know what you call it, like a kerosene lantern thing, because we couldn't have campfires, so we're all huddled around this thing, and we're talking and sharing about the practical ways that God works in our life. And of course, we shared stories about, you know, the good things that God does in our life, and every good and perfect gift is from the Father of Light, so we better send the glory back to God for all the good things in our life. But then we got into some stories of difficulty and suffering, and the rock that hits the windshield and costs money to replace, and the parts that you need for the job that you forgot to bring, and now you're at the job and you think that the day might be a waste, and all those stories of difficulty where we can still point back and say, to God be the glory, because either he spared me from something worse, 
or he's going to work all things together for my good and for his glory. Even through the hard things, Paul says, this was the setting in which we gave the gospel message to you, Thessalonians. So we can be thankful for the hard things because it presented an opportunity for the gospel. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you went through something difficult. And the question was, God, why? If you loved me, why? And God's response to you was to open your eyes of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you could see your desperate need of God. And through that difficult circumstance, God brought good and he brought himself glory through the gospel and hard things. That's the story of the church in Thessalonica. That first verse, it ends with the word in vain. That means fruitless, ineffective, without results. Why did I go through all of this pain? Was it all for naught? What's the purpose in suffering? Nothing to show for my efforts. Wasted, failure. The NET Bible says purposeless. I wonder why Paul felt the need to say that right in the first verse of chapter 2. Did the Thessalonians have this idea that because things went so difficultly for the church planters, for the missionaries, for Paul, maybe the, the region wasn't as open to receiving the gospel other than these Thessalonican Christians who responded in faith, maybe they saw on the outer appearance all of this difficulty and hardship and persecution and suffering and sickness and said, Man, that's a shame. That was a wasted missionary journey. You were sick the whole time. You were in trouble the whole time. You had all of this discouragement in Philippi. You had all of these hardships, all of these conflicts, all of this shame and embarrassment. Was it worth it? And Paul says, our coming to you in all of these circumstances, it wasn't in vain. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't hopeless. It wasn't purposeless. You may have just seen all of the difficulty surrounding the situation where we brought the gospel in Thessalonica, but it wasn't in vain. Uh, we used to give, and I, they might be in the gift bags, I'm not sure, um, a little booklet from John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life to the graduates at graduation. It's a great little book. If you don't have one, we've got a copy I'd love to give to you so you can read. But it's all about the frivolous things that we waste our life on. And the opening story is John Piper as a kid watching this man in the church come to the altar call and sit in the front row and just weep in tears because he had wasted his whole life on things that didn't matter. And John never forgot that. I don't want to waste my life. And that's what came out of this book. Was it all for naught? Was it a waste? Was it in vain? We talked about the frustrations of incremental discipleship that takes a long time. Faithful through difficulty discipleship that's anything but comfortable and easy. Wondering if we can actually cause any change discipleship because it's the work of God in the inner man. Do you ever feel as though your disciple making is in vain? Pointless, hopeless, resultless? What's the purpose? Was it worth all the difficulty, all the prayer, all of the relationship building, all of the time spent, all of the energy invested? Because when I look on social media, there's a different definition for what's worth it in life. Have you noticed this? Like I flicked on Instagram the other night and the first picture to pop up is my friend Tessa in Iceland at this huge waterfall. And I thought, wow, that, that'd be really nice. And then another person I follow is front row at the Coldplay concert in Barcelona. And then the next one is the brand new truck. Just got it, parked in the driveway. And then the next one is the perfectly manicured family all dressed up in their best, sitting on the front porch, all with smiles for the family photo. Social media has a different definition of what's worth it in life. What's worth posting and celebrating and communicating it? Is, is it the shame, embarrassment, and difficulty and hard times and conflicts that you go through to help people follow Jesus? 
Because I don't see a lot of those posts. I don't see a lot of those celebrations. Hey, I met with uh, my colleague at Tim Hortons. I tried to talk to him about Jesus and he got up and walked out. <laughs> Praise God. I remember I had a, an internet service provider in the backyard of our house in New Brunswick and he's telling me all about his life story, his family, his friends, his plans for the weekend. I'm thinking, this guy's wide open. Time for the gospel. And I said, hey, our church family is organizing this event this weekend, and the big idea is to show God's love to the community. He said, whoa, I'm going to stop you right there. I don't mix business and religion. And that was the last we talked of it. I didn't feel the need to post that on social media and celebrate how terrible that conversation went, but a seed was planted. I don't know what the story is going to play out like in that guy's life. But what is worth it? Is it worth it? The difficulty of discipleship. Paul says all of this suffering was not in vain. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't purposeless. In fact, there was great purpose in it. What's the ultimate purpose to this life? What's the point of being on this globe, spinning in space, whizzing around the sun? Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. Paul's giving like the antithesis to his argument here. Here's the flip side. Here's kind of what the world thinks. It's not from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. There's so many other purposes you could be pursuing with your life, isn't there? The options are really endless. Do you remember what it was like to stand on a stage like this or to be at graduation, be graduating from high school and think, the world's your oyster. Like, I, I remember my grade six class. Miss Vincent was the teacher. She was a great teacher. I don't know her first name. I only knew her as Miss Vincent. But up on the wall, there was this big fold-out poster that she had sticky-tacked up there. And it was like this picture of a comet going through space and then the moon and the stars at the end. And the quote was, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Like, be anything you want to be. You can do it. Put your mind to it. If you want to be an astronaut, awesome. They didn't share the statistics of how 0.5% of applicants even make it to astronaut school to see if that can be a thing. They just say, hey, set your mind to it and you can do it. There are so many other things you could give your life to and spend your days pursuing. Paul lists a few of the big topics, fame, fortune, ease, comfort. What's worth your life? Here's the thing, every moment, every day, take this moment for example, right here, right now, you are spending your life on something. Yesterday, you spent your Saturday on something. What did you spend it on? This past week, you spent your week on something. I could pull up my calendar and probably show you what I spent my week on. Everything you do, all of the enthusiasm, creativity, energy, time, resources, talent, skills, relational ability, you are spending it on something every day. Whatever age you're at right now, you've spent all your life on something. So what are you spending your life on? See, I used to think about this like from the high school graduate perspective of life is out there somewhere, I'm going to go discover it and I'm going to get to it. And then I very quickly realized, no, wait a second. I've just spent my last 17, 18 years of my life on something. And I don't know if God's going to afford me a lot more years in life. I've already been spending my life on something. What are you spending your life on? Paul says, we could have asked for payment. We could have asked you to cover the bill for our hotel, for our flights, for our meals. We could have charged you for our presentation. We could have asked you to treat us like celebrities. 
My mom um, helps out with the food services at the rec in Truro. And once in a while, they'll have concerts or they'll have events with celebrities there. And she, she's usually in charge of the green room and all of the uh, list of demands that's written right into uh, their contract. And some of them are really specific and very hilarious, like certain types of candies, charcuterie boards, slippers, barbecue and baked beans, like some very specific, because celebrities like to be treated like celebrities. What are you living your life for? Doesn't that sound like the Pharisees? Jesus said, you go around parading yourselves in the public, in the marketplace. You're just a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes because you love the honorable mentions in the marketplace and using these big lofty titles for who you are. And you love the best seat, the seat of honor. And you want to receive glory and praise from the people. You've got it all backwards. You're the guys who are supposed to be demonstrating God to the people. But instead you want the people to treat you as if you were gods. You've got it all backwards. You made this whole thing about you. And the moment you make life about you, we've missed the point of life. Because it's not really about you. Did you ever tell your kids that? Did you ever hear that growing up? It's not really about you. Glad you want ice cream before supper, little Joshy boy, but it's not really about you. There's too much of this these days. I think it's a distraction straight from hell, drawing people to hell in their fuzzy slippers and charcuterie boards. We're consumers seeking pleasure. We don't have time for what matters most because we're so busy chasing so many other things. They might be good things, but they're not the best thing for your life. I was, I was talking to a gentleman a few weeks back in our church family. We were texting back and forth and he pointed out how he was thinking about the fact that truth is exclusive. There's only one truth. There's only one thing to live your life for and you can justify how you're spending that time. Like the other week when I talked about the ice cream shop owner salesman in the background of the war, as tanks are rolling down the street and he's trying to sell ice cream, well, I'm contributing, aren't I? Yeah, but you're not really in the battle. You're distracted. When I was in grade nine, my friend Kirby and I, we had this great idea on how to make a bunch of money because that's what life was about in grade nine, girls and money. And so uh, our idea was we're going to scrap a bunch of metal because our friend Josh told us we could make a ton of money scrapping metal. And Kirby's next door neighbor had a barbecue at the end of his driveway. So we marched down the street, we grabbed the barbecue, and we rolled it down the street into his dad's garage, pulled out his dad's tools, and started disassembling this old, greasy, disgusting barbecue in his dad's pristine garage. And his dad came home a couple hours later. We spent like all afternoon working on this thing, thinking that we were going to scrap it for a ton of metal. Neither of us had a driver's license or a vehicle. I don't know how we were going to get it to John Ross and make any money. But his father came in, had a puzzled look on his face and said, what are you doing? So we told him our, our big plan, asked him if he wanted to invest in our new <laughs> business venture. And, and he went into the house. I'll never forget this. He got a magnet. And he came back out and he held it on the barbecue. I think it was to demonstrate that it was like aluminum or some other metals. It was mixed metals, which in today's value, you might make five bucks. So we spent all afternoon disassembling this barbecue, messing up his dad's garage because we had these high lofty dreams of profit and fortune for a big $5 mess. And then his dad said, you guys better get that cleaned up by supper. And he went in the house and we didn't see him again. So... That's how it played out. But you can waste your life on frivolous things like disassembling barbecues. And if you do that for a living and you scrap steel, um, yeah, don't take that as offensive. We, we didn't know what we were doing back then and we wasted our afternoon on a $5 barbecue. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, I've seen everything that's done under the sun. This guy had seen everything. He's the wisest man, richest man. 
He had everything this world had to offer at his fingertips. He says, I've seen everything done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Everything under the sun, in and of this world, not taking eternity into account, spending our life here and now. But Paul says to the Thessalonians, our coming to you was not pointless. All the suffering we endured, all the hardship, there was much profit in our work of discipling you. We didn't make money, it was very difficult, but it was of utmost importance and purpose. Look at verse 7. Paul's going to demonstrate what this discipleship looked like, and I think these are beautiful pictures that we shouldn't jump over. Verse 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Paul gave a lot, and he's ready to give even more. He's ready to give his life for these Thessalonians. Because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is Paul's love for the Thessalonians and for this church in Thessalonica. How personal is this? It's like a new mother caring for her infant. I didn't realize this about moms growing up. I never appreciated it until my wife became a mother and Reese arrived into this world for the first time. Mothers give their lives for their children. There's not many aspects of life that they don't give, especially in those initial days of a newborn baby, to their child. The newborn stage is one that's full of joy and excitement and announcement and celebration and exhaustion and pain, some mental anguish. I never realized how strong my wife was until Reese came into the world, day and night, giving of herself for that child giving her very life. Uh, we were at Pastor's Cluster with Fellowship Atlantic on Thursday in Sackville, and Pastor Neil from Gagetown, he, he was praying for the other pastors. We shared a number of prayer requests, and he said this in his prayer, and I figured I should, it was worth pulling out my phone and writing down while he was praying. So here's what he said. Thank you for the blessing of being tired at doing something of eternal value. Thank you that we as pastors get to be exhausted working at something that has eternal value. What else would you want to spend your life on? A new, new parent, tired, exhausted, but their job is abundantly clear and important. I just have to keep this thing alive. <laughs> Raising your child. I mean, the purpose is abundantly clear. I remember this overwhelming sense when Reese came into the world that I was now the what should I call it, the, um, the chief safety advisor. And I would do risk assessment on everything. Did any dads feel that way? Like, whew, I'm the, I'm the chief protector here. Are you wearing nail polish? You can't hold my baby. No, we didn't get that extreme. Paul and fellow church planners, they gave themselves to care for this newborn infant church. They gave their lives, life on life. Professional counseling is great. No shame in seeking professional help. Psychologists, therapists, mental health specialists, for sure. So many ways to help you through difficulty, mentally, emotionally, relationally. But discipleship doesn't happen by paying a professional for an hour of counseling. Discipleship is so much more personal than that. There's nothing wrong with professional help. In fact, there are a lot of benefits to talking with a professional. That's why I have a family doctor. That's why I have an eye test coming up. That's why I meet with a financial advisor because it's very helpful to get professional help and counsel. 
But they're not going to be with you Tuesday evening when you need to meet and discuss that issue in your life over coffee at Tim Hortons. And they're not going to be with you on Saturday morning when you need to set up the trampoline or at the campfire with the guitar, praise and worship through the summer. Discipleship is relational. It's personal. It's life on life. It's spending our lives for other people in an effort to help them follow Jesus. God didn't send a pamphlet with a three-step guide to salvation. He sent his one and only son. God gave his life to provide a way for us to be with him. He didn't send an online course. Paul gave his life for people like the Thessalonians. Why? Were they extra important? Was it a give-and-take relationship? Were they compensating him some way? Was this an investment? He was hoping to get a return in this life? Why would Paul invest all that time and energy discipling these people? For people. Paul gave his life for people. That's why. People like you and me, like your nephew, your boss, the lady who delivers your mail, people. In the end, there's only going to be two things that make it out of this life. God's word and people. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. And people. Nothing else matters. In light of eternity. Not the stuff not the things we tend to focus on day to day, but God's truth and God's people. That's what really matters in the end. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you who believe. For you know how, like a father with his children, okay, we've talked about the mother with her infant nursing child. <clears throat> now we're talking about the father with his children. Verse 12. We exhorted each one of you, we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Dads, the newborn stage doesn't naturally really tend to be our thing. I remember a young mom with a newborn baby, she wanted me to hold the baby. She said, it's just like holding a football. Well, it's not like holding a football. And there, there are certain things the mom can do, especially in those initial stages, that the dad cannot do. Not to turn this into a birds and bees conversation. But dad, as that child grows, your words carry a heavy weight to them. Any of you sitting here today just bring to mind, recollect some of your father's words, or maybe the words of a father figure in your life that have a weight to them, even to this day, either positively or negatively, things that he has spoken over your life that still ring true in your mind and heart today? A father's words carry a weight. And Paul says, like a good father caring for his children, here's three ways that the father leads the children. Number one, exhort. The Greek word there is parakaleo. It means para, close beside, and kaleo, call. This is up close and personal. This is the opposite, the opposite of an absent father. This is with the child, calling them forward. Um, we just talked about on a Sunday, the discipleship process, how on the Jesus journey, you don't need to be at the finish line to help somebody follow Jesus. You can be right beside, encouraging them step by step. Parakaleo, exhort. And then there's encourage. Paramithiomai. Did I say it right? Thank you. It means para, close beside, there it is again, and mythiomai, soothing speaking. It's like when my daughter runs across the driveway and slips and gets gravel in her knee. Daddy comes alongside and speaks soothing words. It's not the encouraging kind where I say, okay, let's keep going, rub some dirt in it. It's the slow, soothing speech 
of the father to the child. It's going to be okay, sweetie. And then, here's the one that I really like, charge, charge. Doesn't that just sound like a good dad word? Charge. Nike, just do it. Martyromai. It means I call or summon to witness. Testify, protest, solemnly charge. It's a calling to witness at the stand. Uh, You know how when they call a witness, they used to. um, Place your hand on the Bible, repeat after me. This is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. In parenting, does it ever feel like in conflict resolution, you're calling the children to testify? Is this the truth? Do you really want to stick with that story? Because we found the napkin with the food shoved in the top of the garbage can. Do you really want to claim that you ate your whole supper? Calling your kids to testify. To encourage is to come alongside... Use soothing speech when your child is upset. To charge is a little less gentle. And it's an opportunity for the child to use their own reasoning and calling upon the values that hopefully have been instilled in them by the parents to tell the truth and to face the consequences. But to testify by telling the truth, it isn't just when they're in trouble and they need to be disciplined, but also to testify of God's goodness, to tell the truth to observe the truth of what God's doing in their life. To charge is to draw the testimony out of someone. With encouragement, we show God to people. With testimony, people show God to us. To encourage is to use soothing words with with an arm around a shoulder and to encourage people to seek God and to see God in their pain. But to charge is to push someone to testify as to how they see God at work in their life. God's goodness, God's faithfulness. One is gentle and sympathetic. The other is calling courage and confidence out of the child. Do you see the focus of Paul's exhorting, encouraging, and charging to the Thessalonians? It's in verse 12. It says to walk in a manner worthy of God, to live a life that is worth it in God's eyes. The responsibility of moms and dads is to show their children why living a life of following God is worth it. Remember last year, Mother's Day, Father's Day, we brought four moms up on stage, four dads up on stage, and we asked them a number of questions just talking about what it's like being a parent, and the last question to both the moms and the dads was, what's, what's your one big desire for your child? What do you want for your child more than anything else in life? And the answer across the board really was Jesus. I want my child to know Jesus. I want my child to love God, to serve God, to understand what God has done for them. That's the one big thing we want for our children. So parents, if you asked your kids what you value most in life, what would they say? Maybe it's not kids. Maybe it's your colleagues. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your family. What would they say that you value most in life? What do you talk about most? What gets you excited most? What causes joy to spring up in your heart most? What do you celebrate? What do you appreciate on the day to day? Here's what got Paul excited. Are you ready? Verse 13. What did he value most? He says, we also thank God constantly for this. Do you know expressing appreciation is one way to show what you value most? You know, counting your blessings every day, having a spirit of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude is one good, easy way that you can show the people in your life what you really value most? When mom and dad say thank you, it's for, and that's what they value. They just want me to follow the rules, and that's when they say thank you. That's what they value. What do you value most in life? Paul says to thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, 
Not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Isn't that the process of discipleship? Receiving the gospel, accepting the gospel, believing the gospel, and then being transformed by the gospel. That's discipleship. Paul says we constantly give thanks to God that you are following Jesus. That's what we value. That's what we appreciate. That's what we thank God for. That's where we ended the message last week. Our responsibility is to plant and water with God's word. It's up to them to accept it, to receive it, to believe it, and to be transformed by it. It's a supernatural aspect of discipleship. It's not something we can force, but certainly we need to do our part in planting, watering, exhorting, encouraging, charging. Listen, Paul makes an even bigger claim for the ultimate purpose in life being helping people follow Jesus. Look at verse 17. We'll read to verse 20, and this is where we'll close. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person we were torn away, not in heart, because Paul's heart is always for the people that he's discipling, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again wanted to come to you. But, get this part, Satan hindered us. Satan kept us from coming to you. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's purpose is people. What got Paul out of the bed in the morning is people who Paul was affectionately desirous for and eagerly endeavoring to be with, is people. Because his big goal in life, his big purpose in life, was to help people follow Jesus. You can read about it again and again and again and again through the letters that he sent to people whom he was helping to follow Jesus. That's Paul's goal in life. And then it said, Satan hindered us from getting to you. If God's tactic for getting his gospel message to people is discipleship, bringing people together and having them share the Jesus journey together, then the devil's tactic is the exact opposite. The devil wants to drive a wedge. The devil wants to divide. The devil wants to separate. The devil wants to do everything in his power to keep the church-planting apostle missionary Paul away from the people that he was trying to encourage follow Jesus. So Satan's going to do everything in his power to keep you from helping me follow Jesus. That's the devil's tactic. Paul said, we wanted to come to you. We eagerly wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. That's what the devil's threatened by. You want to know how to threaten the devil? Give your life to helping people follow Jesus. You want to know what doesn't threaten the devil? Comfort. Ease. Living a life for the money. Living your life for yourself. That doesn't threaten the devil. He applauds that. Go for it. Living your life for the, the toys the accolades, the honor, the respect, the education, the legacy, speaking in earthly terms, the devil applauds that. Go for it. He's not going to fight you on that. He's not threatened one bit. He says, great, you're helping me out with my plan. Keep going. I'm going to encourage you that direction. The devil is threatened when we give our lives to helping people follow Jesus. You know why I think we don't see the devil at work on a surface level in North America as much as in other countries where we hear about these crazy stories of, of demonism and possession and spiritual warfare and, and we wonder why don't we see as much of that in North America? I think it's because North America is sleeping. We're so comfortable with our charcuterie boards and our fuzzy slippers that the devil just stands back and says, you go. You know what threatens the devil? When we step up and we say, my life's purpose 
is discipleship. The ultimate goal of this day, this moment, every day, this week, next month, the rest of my life, is to show people how they can, through faith in Jesus Christ, be forgiven of their sins, be transformed by the Spirit, and live a life for God. When I say I'm giving my life to help other people follow Jesus, that gets the devil uncomfortable. That threatens him. Paul says in verse 19, Paul is so good at giving us this singular mindset time and time again. Here's the one thing I'm thankful for. Here's the one thing I'm thinking about. Verse 19, here's what I keep in mind. Someday Jesus is coming back. And what am I going to have to say? What am I going to have to show for my efforts? He said previously in chapter 2 that God has entrusted the gospel message to him as an apostle. God has entrusted the gospel message to us as those of us who have heard it, received it, accepted it, believed it, and are being transformed by it. We are now entrusted with this gospel message. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Could be right now, could be an hour from now, could be today, could be tomorrow. We don't know the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return. But when he does return, we're going to have to give an account for what we did with this precious good news message that God loves humanity so much that he gave his son to die for us. We're going to have to give an account of what we did with that. Paul says, what do I have to boast about? Is it not you? You're my glory. You are my joy. He uses joy as a metonym. He replaces their name with the experience of joy. You are not just Thessalonians. You are my joy. You are my glory. You are the reason that I'm going through all these hardships so that I can help you follow him. We're talking in our life group. I'll end with this story. We were talking in our life group on Thursday night, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus gives this parable, this, this earthly story with this spiritual heavenly kingdom of God meaning and application. And it's the parable where the master is going on a long journey. So he calls these three servants and he gives them each, according to their ability, an amount of money. And he says he's going to return. So the whole time the master is away, their one goal and their one priority is to invest what their master entrusted them with. And when the master returns, he calls them to task and he says, what did you do with what I gave you? The first two invested it and had a return with what the master had given them. The third one buried it in the sand and said nothing, did nothing, invested nothing with it, spent his time doing other things. And to the first two, the master says, enter into the joy of your Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Our master, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And he's entrusted us with the world's greatest news that has ever been spoken, God's plan of redemption for humanity. And there is coming a day when Jesus is going to return and we're going to have to give an account of what we did with the gospel message that he entrusted us with. What are we going to say? Who are we helping to follow Jesus? Who is our glory and our joy? Who will be the names that you will give when Jesus says, what did you do with my gospel message? Were you ashamed? Did you hide it in the sand? Did you not want anybody to know? Or did you invest it into the lives of people? And leave the return, leave the growth with me. But you were busy planting and watering, encouraging, exhorting, and charging, loving like a mother loves her child through difficulty, helping people follow Jesus. So I guess I'd end with this. What do you value most in life? What's it worth? What is joy to you? Is it the same answer 
as you will give Jesus in the end when he says, how did you put my gospel message to use? If it doesn't match up, let's make sure we correct that by the power of the Spirit, God helping us to do so. And let's make sure we live our lives and we spend our lives on discipleship, helping people follow Jesus. Let me close in prayer. God, would you forgive me for giving this message knowing there are so many hours, days, and weeks where helping people follow Jesus is not my focus. Where I give my life to so many other things and I miss the opportunities that you give having entrusted me with your gospel message. Jesus, thank you for the men and women who gave of their lives to help me follow Jesus. God, would you help us to spend our lives for that purpose? Because really in the end, what is everything else gonna matter? Help us to live our lives for people, for their good and for your glory, God. Thank you that you loved us enough to die for us. I pray for each one here that they would not only hear the good news of what you've done through Jesus, but that they would receive it and consider it, that they would accept it and believe it, and then that they would be transformed by it, by the power of your spirit. God, we thank you for providing us purpose and a point to this existence. And it's only to point people towards you. So help us to be busy spending our lives on that, God. Thank you, Father, for how clear this word is. Now would you give us the courage and the confidence and the focus to be all about your business. In Jesus' name, amen.